DNA Guitars. DNAGuitarCompany.com. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 111 of Guitar Radio Show, the show dedicated to all things guitar, dedicated to the guitar player, guitar builder, gear maker, and purveyors of such items that you may not know about, but you should, damn it. I'm your host, Mark David. Welcome to another episode. This one's going to blow your minds. You know, uh, I'm really lucky. And I'm really grateful that I get to do what I do, and I get to talk to people like the guy I'm going to be talking to today. This is somebody that I've been following since, oh, I guess, 1970 or something. And um, I was always wondering, who is that guy? Who is he? And more and more, he showed up in my record collection, in the liner notes, and on those, in between those grooves, we have Mr. Waddy Wattel with us today. Uh, Stevie Nicks, Joe Walsh, Grant Green, Warren Zevon, Keith Richards. He's an expensive wino. You know, he's uh, he is a chameleon of sorts, and just a fantastic, amazing guitar player, songwriter, arranger. And producer, and uh, you're going to be treated to the next hour and 15 minutes. So strap in to a, a great interview, candid interview. Uh, he told me stuff that I had no idea was the case. You're going to love the Leslie West story. <laughs> it's fantastic, and the Jackson Brown stuff too. Just fantastic. So I can't thank him enough, and I can't thank Scott Thomas enough for setting it up for us. Thank you, Scott. And uh, we're, uh, we're going to get this going right away. So, folks, GuitarRadioShow.com for all your .com needs. And GuitarRadioShow at gmail.com. Of course, check out our Facebook page, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, all that jazz. We've got a lot of cool stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, I think you're really going to dig it. But uh, in the meantime, oh, I want to remind you about one other thing before I hit start. Um, we've got another blog from Adam P. Hunt, formerly of Premier Guitar Magazine. He will be uh, doing an, a blog on prog rock guitar players. And uh, hot off the heels of our Andy Powell interview with from Wishbone Ash. Um, I think it's quite apropos. So check that out. That'll be tomorrow, Thursday morning. Um, so this show comes out on Wednesdays. And on Thursday morning comes Adam's blog. And uh, on our Facebook page on Fridays, uh, you'll be able to go and check out a Flashback Friday episode that we'll put up for you. Something that we pick at random. uh, Something in the Guitar Radio Show archive. So you can check that out as well. All right, folks, you ready? Here we go. Wadi Watel on Guitar Radio Show. GuitarRadioShow.com
penitent. All right, folks, uh, as I was just mentioning to our next guest, uh, this gentleman happens to be uh, playing guitar or producing or in some way involved with about three quarters of my record collection. We have Mr. Wadi Watel on the show. How are you, Wadi? Mark, how's it going, man? Nice to see you. Nice to see you, man. And uh, so you're you're um, an interesting guy, and I have so many questions for you. I've really been thinking about this, and I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, you're originally from Queens, right? Queens, New York? Yes, that's right. Jackson Heights, actually. Jackson Heights, and I was born in Jamaica. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow, amazing. Um, we uh, grew up in Jackson Heights and then moved to... Jamaica Estates, I think it was called. Oh, yeah, yeah. My dad uh, had his second marriage, which was a total disaster. (laughs) But uh, we moved from Jackson Heights to there. And then shortly after that, when that marriage crumbled, we moved to uh, Forest Hills. Uh And that's where I met Leslie. But we'll get get to that in uh, sequence, I guess. Yeah, for sure. But even though that's before everything, really, so maybe that's at the start of it all. But uh, yeah, and here's an interesting thing about Jackson Heights. Um, Gene Simmons and his mother, when they moved from Israel to America, Mm -hmm. they moved into the building I moved out of. Ah. And not only that, but I just spoke to him about this uh, right around New Year's. And he said, yeah, we moved into apartment 1B, and then we moved up to 3B. I went, 3B, huh? Gene, I grew up in 4B. Wow. <laughs> the, the family underneath our apartment used to complain and complain because I'd be stamping my foot practicing guitar, tapping, keeping time. <laughs> and they would bitch and bitch and bitch about it every fucking day. Oh, pardon me. That's okay. You can, you can cuss. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Um, so he and I were cracking up, um, and then he told me you know, it was actually I never watched his show, but he said they actually did a tour of the building, and they went back to our old building. So it was pretty amazing. Wow, that's yeah. wild. Must yeah. be must it's be. To, to Shannon, Shannon, his wife, and telling her we grew up in the same building. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty wild. That's it. Must be something in the water. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um, one of the things I was I was wondering about was, um, and and I tried to find it everywhere and I couldn't find it. What was the impetus for you to actually pick up the guitar in the first place? Was it somebody in particular? Was it some sound in particular? No, it, it was some. Let's put it this way: I I was always musically inclined when I was a kid. I was always hearing songs and singing them, uh, imitating singers. Mm-hmm. Embarrassing my parents, uh, you know, breaking into song here and there. I was a shy kid, but when it came to music, I wouldn't mind <laughs> opening my yap. And uh, but um, and my mother passed away when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. However, when I was about five years old, one day we just happened to walk by this. The television was on, and there was a like a big band playing, and they gave a close up of this guy sitting there playing a big. F hole, you know, what do you call archtop guitar, mm-hmm. jazz guitar. And I just froze. I just looked at it and I just went frozen. And I just looked at my mother. I said, What is that? What is he holding? What is that guy? What is he doing? What is that? 
doing? And my mother said, that's called a guitar. And I just went, that's what I want to do. And she just looked at me and goes, what? <laughs> You're five years old, what do you mean that's what you want to do? I said, that's what I'm going to do. That's it, that's what I want to do right there, what he's doing. That's what I want. Wow. And uh, that was it. And I bugged my old man for years and years. And like I said, my mom left, uh, sadly. Um, it took me a few years to recuperate from that, but all the time, I just kept yelling, screaming about guitar, I want a guitar, I want a guitar. And uh, one point he bought me a ukulele and I went, I counted the strings, but this isn't a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a guitar, it's got four strings. <laughs> and I want a guitar, it's got six strings. I know it has six strings. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I have no idea why, it, you know, it's one of those things that just, it happened and I was mesmerized. And by nine years old, one Christmas morning, there was a, a guitar there uh, in the pile of presents. Wow. And then I got a, a teacher, a wonderful guy named Gene Dell, a great teacher. He used to come to our house every week and started teaching me. And he, I'm left-handed, and so I was sitting there holding it backwards. And as soon as he came, he says, okay, well, first of all, this is wrong. Hmm. And he turned it around and went, what, what are you doing? Hey, I'm, but I'm left-handed. And he goes, not anymore. <laughs> You gotta play this way, you gotta play this way. I said, okay, fine. And uh, started learning Mel Bay, you know, Mel yeah. Bay book one. Mel Bay, yeah, That's, that and, was me. And Oh yeah, oh. sure. And, oh. and then during it, I would, he'd show up and I would, I'd know everything, I'd know the, the lessons very well. And he'd look at me and I'd been supposed to be reading, he'd go, you're not reading. I said, well, I, I read it. You know, I, I know it now. I, I know it. I don't have to read it anymore. I know it. He said, no, you have, you have to read. I said, well, I did read it. You know, that's how I learned it. Now I learned it, so I don't have to read anymore. And he goes, oh, no, 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 this is no good. Your ear is a problem. I said, it's a problem? Why is it a problem? I mean, I wasn't, you know, that <laughs> verbose with the language at that point, but I was confused by his reaction. I thought he would be happy about it. And, Oh, and I heard the song, remember the song Tequila? Mm -hmm. And in the Mel Bay book, when you learned the one major chord, uh, one day I was practicing my lessons and I happened to play the chord on the fifth fret. And then I just happened to play it on the third fret. And when I heard that relationship, I just went, oh man, that's tequila. And so I started playing tequila. Mm -hmm. And he showed up and I said, look, look what I learned. And he goes, oh, it's your ear again. You're doing it again. And I went, well, so what? <laughs> so what? So what does that matter? I, I, and then we would, you know, the more we would learn, the more we would do every week, he'd show up and I'd, you know, he, aside from the Mel Bay book, we were using a Bach piano inventions book. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you know, as we got into like five and six series of books, Mel Bay. And, and he'd show up and I'd know both parts. You know, I was supposed to learn my part, read my part, and, and then he would show up next week and we'd play it together. And he'd, he'd show up and I'd sit there and play my part. And he'd go, but you're not reading it. And I said, no, I know it. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I learned it. I said, I learned your part too. Yeah, play mine, I'll play yours. <laughs> he goes, oh no. So 
my ear was a gift, a really uh, incredible gift to me, which I came to realize. And he did too. After a while, he would just put things on a recorder for me, and you know, more complicated things, leave me to learn them that way. And you know, we continued with the reading in the Mel Bay books and finished all nine of them. And, but my ear was ahead of me. So from there, was it? Were you starting to play in like forming bands in the neighborhood? Or? Well, yeah, I was. Uh, I think I was about. So later on, it was when you got to California when you started to to start to be like a hired gun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Much later. Well, let me let me continue the Queens saga because it's interesting. What okay. happened was so after Harry, my dad was Harry. After his marriage crumbled, we moved to Forest Hills. My brother, my father, and I. We moved into this building, and there was this building we lived in 
facing another building. It was like a little complex, these two apartment buildings mm-hmm. facing each other. Mm-hmm. And I was always, I was a truant. I was terrible at, uh, I couldn't be bothered going to school. I just had much too much life to learn about, uh, and much, much too much music and songs and life in general. I was more fascinating to me than sitting in class. So I was cutting school all the time. I was terrible lying, miserable little prick. Uh, <laughs> but one of those days while I was home, in high school, I came out of my apartment to go to the little candy store on the, on the corner, and I heard guitar coming out of an apartment. Now, by now, this is like Beatle time, okay? When I moved to Forest Hills, that's when the Beatles came out. So that must have been, what, 65, I guess? 64, maybe? Mm-hmm. manager was a real piece of shit and he 
greedy cat who, who just drove every record company away from us, mm -hmm. basically. I mean, I got a phone call. I picked up my phone and I heard my demo in the background and it was Ahmed Erdogan calling me, going, I want to talk to Wadi. And I went, uh, I'm Wadi, who's this? He goes, this is Ahmed Erdogan. And I could hear my record in the background, this demo, and he, he goes, I love this fucking record. I want to sign you guys. I went, oh my God, it's happening. This is real. And then Bud went in to take a meeting and blew it. Blew the meeting. I couldn't believe it. And then he, every other label that was interested in us, he blew. And it was just a horror show. In the meantime, the band was starting to get a little, I don't know, old. And it's funny, when I came to L.A., I wanted to meet, there was two, only two people I really wanted to meet. One was Brian Wilson, who was, to me, the genius of our lives, and it basically is the genius of our lives. And uh, like I said, Beach Boys was the thing that blew my mind away from only playing. I realized that I have to sing and I have to learn everything about harmony. But the other person I wanted to meet was Dave Crosby, because Dave was very outspoken at that time, and on, you know, on Rolling Stone and talking about stuff. And my brother and I would read Rolling Stone to little guys in New York and dreaming about the West Coast. So I wanted to meet David Crosby. And, and two days after I got here, I'm sitting at a table and there's David Crosby sitting like four tables away. And I'm going, I don't believe this. This is incredible. And I introduced myself to him. I made a fool of myself, really. And just got up and bothered the guy while he was eating. And, but um, Dave came by the house, heard the band, really liked what he heard. But called me and said, Waddy, you know, I gotta tell you something. You know you're the only one in that band, right? And I went, oh man, please don't tell me that. You know, I've been working this thing so hard. It was, I can tell you have, and you know, they sing good, and everybody sings good, but you're the only real player in that band. So, and then through the course of still trying to make it with the band, I met a couple of more people. I met a wonderful guy named Keith Olson, fabulous producer of an incredible track record and his partner who passed away Kirk Betcher they introduced me while working with the band I happened to meet a couple of studio musicians you know and when I met these guys and I heard them playing I went hmm you know maybe Crosby's right you know maybe that's what I should do I should become a studio musician that's what I should do I can play as good as these guys I can hear I hear what they're doing one guy was playing slide, and it was so bad that I didn't even know what slide guitar was, and I just went to the producer, I said, and it was Keith Olsen, I said, let me tell you something. I don't even know anything about slide guitar, but I promise you I can play it better than that fucking guy. <laughs> that guy's terrible. <laughs> That's awful, I and mean, I know I can do better than that. So he hired me, let me do it, and, and I fell in love with slide as well, but. So that was it, I became a studio musician. I wanted to be one and God was willing and the timing was exquisite for me. 1968, California, Los Angeles was an open area for talent and music and mm -hmm. a creative fountain of everything. It was it was like Liverpool for Beatles, you know. Yeah. Everybody who you came to know of was happening, was just coming up. You know, mm -hmm. everybody, and everybody was with everybody. It was an incredibly musically collective period. People were either 
in a studio with you or writing with you or you were writing with them or you were helping somebody do something. Or, mm-hmm. It was wonderful. It was totally amazing. During that time period, did you... Um were you ever crossing paths with like Tommy Tedesco and Carol and people like that? I met, I played with Carol. I never met Tommy Tedesco. Mm-hmm. I did play with Carol. I played with Hal Blaine. Mm-hmm. I was a little later than that. Those guys. Yeah, I figured. Uh, my group was more, well, I, I, like I said, I played with Carol Kay and uh, Mike Dacey and Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, uh, Larry Nechtel, but Jim Keltner, Jim Keltner introduced me to a lot of them. I met Jim, right. and he introduced me to Larry. Well, I was on a date with them, and I wound up on a session with them. And so I met a lot of those guys, but I never, never had the pleasure of meeting Tommy, no. No, no. Not a lot of them. Um, one of the things I was wondering about, you know, when you've worked with so many different types of folks and from so many different genres, how is how does your approach change? I mean, so if you're working, you know, if you got Stevie Nicks or Joe Walsh or Grant Green or Warren Zevon or Keith or Cheech and Chong, <laughs> how does your approach change to that particular session? Is it is there is there something specific that you're being asked, or is it or you bring what are you bringing to the table? Well, what I learned about myself is. My life is built built around counterpoint, basically. Everything that I do uh, is song-oriented. The approach isn't different because it's all about the song you're about to record for somebody. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to me what kind of music it is, really. It's the song. It's the melody and the chords and the space in between the melodies. And what can be done, should be done, needs to be done. And counterpoint is a lot of that. You know, it's when the melody stops, there needs to be something to catch the ear. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, my ear, again, was so quick that I'd get to these sessions and there would be charts. And I, I was, I'm an okay reader, but I'm not a really good reader at all. But my, I would learn a song. You know, I, we'd hear it once or twice and I would know it. So from then on, I could close my eyes and listen and, and figure, oh yeah, I know what to do here. I can hear I would just be able to hear the necessary little hook thing that would tie the melodies together on mm-hmm. a vocal, and, um, and being being quick, being quick is another thing in this town. And when you were when we were coming up, you had to learn quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, I would I would imagine also being a chameleon as well. Well, again, like I said, it it really didn't matter that the music type of music. It, it didn't matter. It was music and it was a song and it was a, it was a singer. Mm-hmm. I mean, my preference is rock and roll music, but at the same time, I love country music, which I didn't know I would love at all. I mean, when I came from New York, you know, the only time you ever heard country music in New York City was in a Jersey cab, you know. You get that, you go, hey man, would you shut that crap off? <laughs> but I got out here and I started being... You know, when I got here, I saw Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton on television. And as I was laughing, looking at the oddly shaped little blonde woman, when she opened her mouth and sang, I melted. Yeah. And I just realized, oh my God, this is the most angelic sound I've ever heard in my life. And then I started hearing all the guitars on these country records. Mm-hmm. 
tones of them and what the guys were playing, I went, man, I'm missing out on a lot of shit here, so yeah. I gotta start learning this stuff. And actually, that helped me in my session work. I wound up doing a lot of what I call my phony steel guitar. And uh, that's what I would do. I had a, I would, The only pedal I ever used was a volume pedal. And I learned how to do my bends quick enough and in tune enough where it, where it would sound like a pedal steel. And uh, I got a lot of work doing that with a lot of people. So I was taken by country music, but any any tune, it didn't matter to me. You know, you walk in and just thankfully you got a job, first of all, and walk into a date and Jackie DeShannon is singing some ballad, some beautiful ballad, and you find a couple of notes that make it matter even more, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like when I came in to play for, I really wanted to get into the circle with Peter Asher, and I just couldn't do it. It was, it was, he wouldn't let me in there. It was closed up, and I became good friends with J.D. Souther. And I went by the studio one day to say hello to one of the guys, Kenny Edwards. Uh, and J.D. saw me. He goes, Waddy, hey, man, what are you doing here? I said, I just came by to say hi. He goes, you got to play on this. And I saw Peter Asher bite his lip and go, oh, no, I don't want this guy in here. You know, this freaky-looking weird guy. <laughs> and, and, but it was one of those moments where J.D. had a song, and Linda's album, Simple Dreams, was based on J.D.'s song, Simple Man, Simple Dreams. Mm-hmm. And that was the first thing I played for J.D. And when I sat down and heard him sing and heard the song, the, the first little space in the vocal I realized there was a perfect spot for a little steel guitar kind of like a real quick one, Da-da, just like something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I did it, and Peter Asher just sat up in the booth and said, "What? What was that?" And heard it, and we played the song, and all of a sudden I was offered a drink. You know, I was like, "Hey, come on in. You want to? You want to? You want a drink?" Said, oh yeah, sure. I'd love one. Thanks. Now, what do you what do you think was his initial issue with you before that? I just think he was very committed to the guys he believed were the guys. Mm. He didn't want to stray. He didn't want he didn't want any newcomers to come in and fuck up what he knew he had going. Right. You know. So he he, he felt like he had a formula. Well, a formula or just, you know, he'd found the guys, you know. Right. He found his guys for that. He had he had two, he had two sets of guys. Uh there was the uh Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, yeah, Lee Sklar, James Taylor gang, right, and and I guess that was a pretty tight knit group as far as you know because they were, I mean, you had all the folks that came out of the whole Stone Pony era, right, and then everyone. yeah, and that was the other bunch. It was Andrew Gold, yeah, Kenny Edwards, yeah. and Linda, yeah, and Michael Botts was the drummer, and and then Dan Dugmore was the steel player and. So I met, uh, Peter heard me, uh, I started playing with Lou Adler, it was the first big session I got really. Was, I was working with a, a great producer named Nick Vinay, who who actually produced the first Stone Ponies album. And not only that, he produced the first Beach Boys album, wow. turned out. Wow. Uh, and he really liked my playing. Uh, but we were working on all these kind of folky things that never were gonna go anywhere. And I was playing acoustic all the time and he heard me play electric. Uh, excuse me. And one day he said, 
bring, he says, it was funny, he said, he called me aside, he goes, Wadi, it's time for you to move on. And I thought he meant, I'm, uh, he's firing me. I went, what, what did I do, what's wrong? And he goes, what do you, what do you mean, I gotta leave? What? He goes, no, 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 it's time you moved on. You're better than what we're doing here. You need to go to the next level of players in this town here. He says, so there's a new piano player in town named David Foster. He just got here and he's the new hot guy. And I've invited him down to play tomorrow night, specifically because I want him to hear you. So bring your electric tomorrow. I want you to play slides and play some, you know, do your pedal thing. And so we did a couple of songs. David heard me. I didn't know if, any, you know if it meant anything. And then a couple of days later, I got a call from Lou Adler's office and Lou Adler wanted me to come and play on a session. And when I walked in, I'd already met Lee Sklar and Russ Kunkel. We'd played, played in a bunch of sessions already. But I'd never met Danny Korchmar. And so there was Danny and I meeting for the first time. And we fell in love with each other and Lou loved me. So I was brought into that circle mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I knew, I was playing on an album for Carol King. And we went on the road. We did a tour with Carol on a record called Thoroughbred. It wasn't, wasn't a big record. And I don't even think there was a hit on it, really. But it was after the Giant Tapestry record. Mm-hmm. And so we went on the road and we came back and played uh, UCLA um, with Carol. And Peter Asher was at the show. And the next thing I know, I get a call from Peter saying, I want you to come play for Linda. Whoa, really? Huh? Okay. So I went in the studio and played on. Uh, I can't remember what the first song was, but it might have been Warren's tune. Uh, what's the name? Uh, this is the album before Blue Bayou album. Uh, what Warren's title? It's Warren's song. Warren's song is the title of the album. I can't think of it at the moment. But. It wasn't the Heart Like a Wheel album. That was after. No, no, that was earlier. It was, that was earlier. Uh, yeah, I'm just blanking out on the title. I'm, I'm lousy with titles anyway, but uh, <laughs> I could look it up in a minute. But anyway, the hit on that record was "That'll Be the Day." Right. And, uh, that was the first. So I got to you know, we we cut that track and my solo was live, and mm-hmm. and they really dug it. And, you know, and that was another thing. I would always try to do solos live, which you weren't supposed to do at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kept, they kept telling me, don't do that, you know, you're supposed to just lay it down and then you'll come back and do the solo, but I would get excited. And like I said, I would hear stuff during a take, I would hear, I'd know, I'd know what to do, I'd know this lick's gonna work here, you know, so. Mm-hmm. And I would do the same, the solo spots would come up and I wasn't supposed to do it, but I would, I would do it, and, you know, a lot of, fortunately, a lot of the times they liked it, so. It was good, and so, that was it. So I went from James's circle, even though I didn't play with James yet, but I played with Carol, with Lee and Russ and Danny. Mm-hmm. And then I was in with Andrew and Kenny and Peter for Linda. And, uh, you know, it was, like I said, it was an amazing time, Mark. It was ridiculous. Everybody was always with everyone else. And in that time, I met, before all that happened, I met Warren's Yvonne when I, we played, I, my first gig out of LA was the Everly Brothers. Mm-hmm. And that's when I met Warren, he was the band leader. So we became these in love with each other adversaries who 
you know, we're always trying to one-up each other and continue to do so forever. Yeah, I've got a lot of questions about you and Warren, for sure. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, you you worked on a couple of albums, and then you, you ended up not only... Practice, uh, playing on, but also produced Excitable Boy, or co-produced, yeah. right? It was a co-production? Co-production, yeah. Right. Now... I played on the one album before that. Right. Now... Hasten Down the Wind, that was the album. That's it, Hasten Down the Wind, that was a Ronstadt yeah. album, right. That's it. And, in, in, and for those who don't know, Linda Ronstadt was my very first crush. Oh, she was most people's very first crush. <laughs> what an incredible doll. What amazing, amazing, amazing singer. But um, so when you guys, you know, and, and this this is another thing about approach, too. So when you're when you're a guitar player on a session, you're bringing you're bringing your guitar playing, you're bringing whatever ideas that they want to hear. But when you're a producer, it's a whole different thing. So now you've got and, you know, and I, I, I love liner notes. I'm all about the liner notes. And the liner notes on Excitable Boy, which is really an important album of that era. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize how important that record is. It had three uh, AOR singles that were just constantly played. I mean, and obviously the iconic uh, Werewolves of London. But but you had the title track, which was such, a, I mean, lyrically, I mean, I bet you Elton John was twisting over that one. Um <laughs> And then Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Yeah, Lawyers. Which is one of my favorite songs to play. It's such a great rock Our our favorite, me and Warren, was Tenderness on the Block. Oh, okay. Was the exquisite piece of work for that record. So... And Roland was great. Actually, they're like a martyr, but Tenderness was just too incredible. Just a great album. I mean, really, yeah. just just from from one side to the next, just a great album. But when you're producing something like that, now you're not only. I mean, and you played on every every track. Um, you you've got to balance what you're going to do. Then you've got to handle all the talent because there was a lot yeah. of talent on it. Linda's on there. JD's on there. I mean, it goes on and on. Sklar's on there. Corchmore's on there. Picaro. And then you've got Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So yeah. how do you find the balance between what you've got to play, what you've got to organize, and then all those people, too? Well, I, I don't even... Basically, I was helping, I was arranging the songs as well. So, And I, I put my guitar last. I figure I ain't worried about what i got to do. I'll, I'll do something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as I could make sure the drums and the bass and, and Warren's thing as long as everybody was and, 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 and that's the joy of playing with musicians like these you don't have to tell them what, what to do you know they, you play a song for these guys and they they give it back to you pretty close to how you, how you want it mm-hmm. really I mean Lee Sklar an incredible musician Russell Jeff Picaro these brothers these are all my brothers and they're all amazing at that. They do what I do. They hear a song and they know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know when you're just hiring these guys, you've you've already you're already ahead of the game. Mm. And then as long as the arrangement speaks right to the song, and may, a lot of producing is making sure your artist is comfortable. Because if your artist isn't comfortable, you ain't going to get anything. Mm-hmm. You know. Especially 
when it's down to the vocals, which are the most important part of any record, is the, is the singer, mm-hmm. the singing of the song. Mm-hmm. And it has to mean it. It has to, it has to be meant. It has to be real or it's not there. So you have to do everything you can to make sure that your singer is, feels like singing. And when you have somebody like Zevon, who was a complete fucking alcoholic lunatic, <laughs> and, and at that point in time, we were all out of our minds. <laughs> it was, uh, that was a balancing act. It was pretty rough, you know, pretty, eh, not rough, but it was, it was challenging sometimes, yeah, yeah. you know. One of the things I loved about Warren Zevon was his, he had this um, wonderful arrogance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it came up. I mean, about he and I, when we met, we were like, okay, I can't stand you. You can't stand me. I know you're great and you know I'm fucking good at what I do. So fuck you and fuck you. Let's let's just play music and shut the fuck up. <laughs> and that's how we were. I mean, it, it was. He relied. But Jackson called me. I played on the the album prior to Excitable Boy. I met Jackson during that record, uh-huh. and Warren introduced me to Jackson. And then I did an interview in England when I was on the road with Linda. About someone asked me what I thought of Jackson's production on the album, and I, being an idiot, thinking I'm so far away, no one's ever going to hear about this. And, at home so I said I think Jackson had his hands too full and he really didn't know what he was doing I mean it was really hard to deal with Warren anyway and he took on a lot it was you know a lot of problems trying to trying to relegate logic and a musical sense around Warren because he was out of his fucking mind and, and it was very hard he, it was very hard for him to, to produce the record I got home my phone is ringing. It's Jackson Brown, who's never called me before. And he goes, hey, Waddy, how you doing? It's Jackson. I went, hey, what's happening, man? How are you? He goes, yeah, I'm good. I, I read your interview. I went, you what? <laughs> you what? You, you know, your interview in England? The one where you said I didn't know what I was doing and I had my hands too full? I went, uh, oh, well, uh, he goes, yeah, you were right. He says, you were absolutely right. He says, that's why I'm calling you. I need you to co-produce the next record with me. And I just said, what are you talking about? Are you fucking crazy? You don't even know me. He goes, oh yeah? He goes, I know you well now. He goes, and I know where I stand with you. He goes, and I'll tell you what else. Warren won't listen to me now. At all. But he will listen to you now. But after this record, he won't listen to you either, which is exactly what happened. So... He says, so I need you to do this with me. And, oh, man, okay, I'm in. <laughs> so that's how it came about, <clears throat> him bringing me on. How long did that record take to do? Very hard to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's a long time ago, and yeah. time itself was uh, influenced by a lot of... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, remember, I remember hearing the... the, the crazy story about just trying to do Werewolves of London. <laughs> eight bands or eight or nine bands. Yeah. yeah. You know, and Garden. finally, and finally, Mc, Mc, the world. Yeah, fi- finally, McVie and, and, uh, and, and Fleetwood yep. were able Nailed. to, they were able Nailed. to catch the groove. Even though, yeah, and I think it was Jorge Calderon, I do believe, that suggested we used Mick and John, uh-huh. who 
we knew because of Stevie Lindsay. So I went, oh yeah, those guys, they right. can do this song. They can make it fucking heavy. Because that's what it was. It just sounded, it just didn't sound serious to Warren and I. Mm-hmm. We wrote the song, we brought it in, it was this comic piece of music, but every time we played it, it sounded like funny. Right. You know, the band track was light and stupid and and Jackson was going, yeah, that's great. And we're going, no, it isn't. That ain't it. That's not it. That's so wrong. We don't even want to put this record on this album. If, if that's, the, that's the take, we're not even going to do it. And then Jorge suggested, what about Mick and John? I went, oh my God, those guys might be able to nail this. Yeah. So we brought them in. It took all night, uh, even though when we did take number two, Jackson and I looked at each other and went, that was pretty good, wasn't it? And he goes, yeah, that was good. And Mick goes, ah, let's keep going, keep going. Right? We gotta keep going. <laughs> so we fucking kept going till like take 60. Oh my God. I swear to God, it was all night long. And finally, I just looked at Jackson and I went, Jackson, take two was pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> he goes, yeah, you wanna hear it? I went, I sure do. Let's go hear it, Mick, stop. Let's go listen. And we listened and went, that's it, we're done. And, and I remember reading an article in a recording magazine about this, and then you said that you went in, you went into the studio with, uh, was it a bottle of Jack Daniels? Vodka. A vodka. Okay, and you and you la- and you laid down your slide part in what two takes or one take? I, I set up everything. I rolled a joint, poured myself a drink, set everything on the console. Figured I was going to be the set. Warren and Jackson home. Because I was going to, you know, this is my shot. i got to do a good solo on this one. they got to right. really nail this. Yeah. got to come up with some shit on this one. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Sent them home, sat down next to the engineer, took up the slide. I went, okay, roll. Played one take. I went, hmm, give me another track. Roll it again. I played the harmony part. I went, okay, we're done. <laughs> I, said, no, I never even lit the joint. <laughs> never had a sip of the drink. <laughs> <laughs> I called Jackson I said you, you gotta come back he goes what do you mean I just got home I said well I'm done he goes what do you mean what I said I think I'm done you gotta come here what I did so they came back and went oh man that's great are you kidding that's it it is it is really just such a great solo I mean it's one of those solos you can sing you know, it sticks with you, it gets in your head, and you can sing it. I love that story. I really, really do. I, you know, I tell I tell that story to people all the time. I go, you want to hear? And when they, whenever the whenever the song's on, I always tell people, I go, hey, you want to hear the story about this song? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Man. It it's so great. Nice. It's so great. So um, later on, you uh, after that, you did. Uh, I mean, you've done so much stuff, but I'm I'm kind of jumping around. When you did the, uh, you were on the FM soundtrack for that movie FM, and Linda, oh, yeah, FM, yeah. Linda's in there, and all that same, that was, all that crew is in there. Well, that was yeah. They just came and filmed us on the road, basically. We were, yeah, we were just doing a show, and they said we we're going to make a movie around you guys. Right. Now, is that the first time that you ended up working with Keith? Keith wasn't in that, but he's on the soundtrack now. Oh, I don't know. Is he? I have no idea. Yeah, you know, I never bought the soundtrack. Um, I saw the movie, and, uh, but uh, I don't know. Is that so? I know. I know. Steely Dan was on the soundtrack. Yeah, Steely Dan's on there. Linda's on there. Uh, no, I met Keith. Uh, I 
think before that, I think it was before that. I, when we went to England with Linda, the first time I went to England with Linda, mm-hmm. um, Keith came to the show. Mm-hmm. And before that, we played the amphitheater, and I met Mick and Woody here. And then we were in London, and after the show, I go downstairs in the dressing room, and there's fucking Keith Richards standing there. And I was like, oh my God, there's that guy. And there's my guy, you know, and uh, went over to him and I went, wow, Rolling Stone. I said, and and we're about the same height. I like that. Hi, hi, I'm Waddy. He goes, hey, man, nice to meet you. And, and we got on right away. You know, we, just, we dug each other immediately and spent the next several days and nights together just listening to music and mm-hmm. talking and playing a little, but basically listening to records and talking about music. Did um, when you worked on the uh, and I'm jumping around. I'm sorry, but um, there's. I mean, I could spend days with you chronicling everything you've done. But uh, when you worked with uh, worked on the uh, Lindsey uh, Buckingham the Buckingham Knicks album, yeah, that was done in Sound City, right? Right. Yep. Um, is it true what they say about that room? Was it was it something? I mean, I heard it was a real dump, but I also heard that it was pretty magical too. Well, you heard, you could hear it. I mean, it was a great sounding room. Yeah, it, it was a great sounding room that a lot of records were done in. But it was a it was a great old Neve board, beautiful board, and twenty four track Studer and and Keith Olsen. You know, Keith Keith Olsen was the guy who produced Lindsay and Stevie and produced me. He's like I said, that's one of the first people I met. Mm-hmm. So I've been working with Keith on and off on my own stuff, trying to get me a deal, and we got me a little singles deal. And I was doing sessions with and for Keith for you know a couple of years, and then one day he goes, "I'm bringing this couple down from Northern California. You have to play with them. You got to meet them. Uh, they're great singers, really good writers, and the guy's a really good guitar player. But he doesn't know how to play with other people. He needs to play with you. So I want you on this record. So that's when we met. He brought Lindsay and Stevie down. We all became Yeah, it's, it's, it really is a great record, and it kind of it really holds up. Yeah, it does. There's some great stuff on it, and what the thing that I liked the best was actually there's a a song on it. Hold on, let me see that fucking title again. Title. Here we go. <laughs> uh, fucking next where are you? Here we are. Uh, Cry in the night. Uh huh. I don't know if you know that song, mm-hmm. but there's a the record company decided they wanted a single that was the single they wanted from the record but they wanted it redone so that was where I got to do a bunch because I was you know I was I was accompanying Lindsay on that record basically I played some slide on whatever I could you know I did whatever whatever was necessary but Lindsay was the featured guitar on that record but on the when we redid Cry in the Night as a single uh I put electric guitar over Lindsay's acoustic and then I played lead slide all over it. Mm. And it came out really exciting. It sounded like a Badfinger record. It came out sounding more like Badfinger. It was really cool. Uh, and so I really had a, a good time doing that. Yeah. Um, Lindsay and I spent 
months and months, just months, just playing guitar together every day. You know, I was, I was, that's when I was working with the Everly's. And, uh, and then I actually, at one point, I gave Lindsay the job with the Everly's and I had, a, I started working with Linda. Lindsay took over with Don and Phil for a little while, played with them. They were amazing. They were amazing. Everly's? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. That's it, man. That's the height of it. That's the height of it. Yeah. And yeah. That, I was told about the gig, I said, are you kidding? <laughs> that, that Everly's need a guitar player? I said, that's me. Yeah. I said, I know every song. Yeah. I mean... And I know but, every part. And uh, so I went and auditioned for Warren and uh, got the gig. Definitely. Yeah. Between them and, and the tracks that Buddy Holly left us, it was just an unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable yeah. stuff. I work with the Buddy Holly Foundation now, and and I was able to... Uh, it's funny, they, they gave these guitars... We, we did this celebration of Buddy on his 70th birthday, 75th birthday, mm-hmm. at the show. Uh, and I was an MD on the show, and Steve was in it, Lyle Lovett was in it, Chris, I, Chris Isaac, uh, Raul from the Mavericks uh, oh, a lot of great people saying yeah. some lovely women too I'm blanking but um, they gave out these guitars to people these gorgeous uh, like a what's this uh, J45 mm-hmm. with this beautiful leather bound case around it mm. uh, and card leather cover for the guitar I'll send you a picture of it so you know what I'm talking about okay but uh and they were giving them to like Graham Nash had one and Peter Ash. I said, well, hey, what about me? <laughs> I said, I'm leading this fucking band. Don't I deserve one of these? And they went, you know what? You do deserve one. So they gave me one. And and you had a name. Everyone named their guitar for a buddy song. And my said, well, words of love. I want. I'll, I'll say words of love. And in the guitar, in, in the first generation of these guitars they made, there was a fret from Buddy Holly's guitar in, in the guitar. Oh, oh yeah. man, that's amazing! I, I did so. I did the show for them, and then uh, I became very friendly with the man, a wonderful man, who I've never even met in person, still to this day. Peter Bradley. I know his son, Peter Bradley Jr. But um, Peter Bradley said, "You know, Wadi, when we started this whole idea of getting guitars to people, the first, the reason we started it was because of Mick and Keith, and not Fade Away." Mm. They're single of not fade away, mm-hmm. and but we were never able to get to them to give them guitars. You know, we were the manager, you know, no one they wouldn't take our calls. They wouldn't, we couldn't get to them. You know, but do you think maybe you could make that happen? Could you get to them? And I'm going, of course I can get to them. You know, and I'm thinking, well, gee, a free guitar, Buddy Holly, yeah, I think uh, that'll work. But the funny thing was. They gave, when they gave out these guitars to people, they're saying, so here's the, the program is this. You get the guitar and you keep it for a while. And you do benefit shows, you know, and, you know, show it around and, you know, do charitable, charitable work, things like that. But then you pass it on to someone else. And I went, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't fuck, I don't like that idea at all. So when they asked me about getting a guitar to Keith and to Nick, I went, all right, let me tell you something. If I do this for you, my guitar is mine. And they went, oh yeah, I think Peter Bradley goes, absolutely, he said, I was gonna say that next. You keep your guitar, it never leaves your house. It's yours forever. <laughs> but okay, so I went to a Stone show with Keith, and uh, I said, showed him the picture of it, I said, 
would you like this guitar? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, that's done. Um, okay, and I had to talk to Mick about it, so I went and spoke to Mick, and he said, yeah. So I said, okay, it's done. And they brought them to them like the next night at the show, and they both, they went crazy. They loved them. That's cool. And then I did a, a show for a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tribute to the Everly Brothers recently, about a year and a half ago. And Peter, again, said, Body, because they give one to Philip, who's now dead. They said, do you think Donald Everly would want a, would want a guitar? And I went, look, Don Everly is the crabbiest motherfucker in the world. He hates everybody. <laughs> I don't want to bother him about anything. I said, if the moment presents itself, I will ask him. But I'm not going to just bring it up, you know. So, And I hadn't seen Donald in a million years. So we went to do this show in, in, in Cleveland, and it was wonderful. All these amazing people got up and sang. And, you know, uh, Rodney Crowell led the, led the show, and Alvin Lee led the band. And I, they called me about it, and I said, they, I said, well, who else is in the band? They said, oh, no, you're not in the band. I went, what? What do you mean I'm not in the band? What, what am I supposed to do? They said, well, we want you to, you know, sing something or, you know, be one of the guests. So I said, oh, wow, I've never been, I've never been a guest before. So I said, I got to sing. Uh, I said, well, then you got to call J.D. Souther and get him down here because I want to do Lucille with him. And then I sang Claudette with Graham Nash. It was really wonderful. That's great. But oh, and also, I wrote to Keith through his manager, and I said, look, I'm going to this show. And I found out the only person that, that Donald really wanted at the show was Keith. Mm-hmm. And Keith couldn't be there. They were in, their stones were off doing their thing. So I wrote to him and I said, look, if there's anything you'd like to be said, or if you'd like to write something down for Donald, I would be honored and proud to read it in front of the audience and, and him. And the next day I got this handwritten fax from Keith. And it was just fantastic. And so I, I did it on stage, I read it on stage. And I told Keith, I said, I almost did it in your fucking accent, too. I almost went for the accent. But, yeah, so far, hey, Donald. Uh, but I said, no, I can't, I can't do that. So I just read it and, and presented it to Donald in front of everybody. It was really wonderful. And then after the show, I saw Don at this party, and he says, so, Wadi, you're really busy now, right? I went, yeah, I've been really, you know, lucky. And he goes, yeah, now. He says, you're busy all the time. He says, I wish I had something to do. I'm just so bored. I went, you are, huh? Well, how'd you like a nice new guitar like this from the Buddy Holly Foundation? And he goes, what? And he, I showed it to him. He goes, yeah, I'd love that. I went, okay, it's a done deal. So I got him one. <laughs> and it was great. It was really great. I just went to Nashville recently and did the presentation for him. That's so great. That's so great. You know, I think I think what's interesting about you and folks like Keith and, and all of these people that you've played with over the years, especially the ones in, in sort of in the circle there, is that you guys, it always came off feeling and sounding really honest. And, I, and as I hear you talk, it's all about that you just really love what you do. Well, it, it's again, it's it's down to the music it's the song it's you know there, I don't know what it is about music that inhabits our soul but it, it, it did to me and it did to every uh, every one of my dear musical friends yeah. and all my brothers out here it's it's an incredible reality I mean you, you see what music does to people when you play a song mm-hmm. and you know how it touches them and, and 
and it does that to me constantly. I, 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 I hear songs, I start crying in my car about mm-hmm. gorgeous, a, a word is, or a line, or a, something that somebody played. It's, mm-hmm. it's just too much, and, and that's what it's always been about. Yeah. That's why Beach Boys slayed me when I heard that singing. I just went, oh my God, what mm-hmm. the fuck is that shit? Yeah. Now I gotta learn that. <laughs> I gotta learn to do that, you know, and I love vocals, I love singing. So speaking of, we were just talking about guitar that guitar a little while ago. You're you're pretty much very faithful to your to your '60 Les Paul and that '64 Strat that sunburst you got. Fifty-seven. Oh, it's a fifty-seven. I thought it was a '64. Yeah, fifty-seven. Yeah. So yeah. you've been pretty. Those have been pretty faithful for you all these years. Um, is it that? the idea of having those two particular tools, because that's what Les Paul used to say to me all the time. You know, he, used, yeah. he used to say to me, just remember, man, they're tools. Like, yeah. okay. But um, those two are in particular have been your mainstays. Is there anything in particular outside of that? I mean, because that's what we usually see you with. Well, no, but, you know, for the past several decades, you've seen me with this, the ugliest Les Paul in the world, my white one. <laughs> The, with no pick guard, there's black pickups showing, and this Earl Scheib fucking paint job on it. <laughs> yeah, it's the ugliest guitar in the world, and it's the most evil sounding Les Paul. I had to replace my my sixty broke so many times. Mm, the neck, right? And I got to a point where I mean, it even broke on the first day of tracking for Keith's first solo album. We went to Canada, and I take my guitar out, and it had just recently been fixed, and. I start playing on it and I can feel the crack in the back of the neck is coming apart in my hand and I'm going, oh no, you gotta be shitting me, not now. This is fucking Keith Richards record and I'm about to play on the first song and my guitar's breaking. So I had to play the first song on this, some kind of, one of these weird Les Pauls, he gave me this black kind of odd looking thing. And like I said, I always go for solos live, so there it is on the song, How I Wish. Uh, Keith's record, mm-hmm. the solo is live and it's on this bizarre kind of <laughs> black Les Paul. But uh, yeah, the, uh, so I had to replace it and I found this. It's the neck, by the way. Um, it's all about the neck. Yeah. And the sound, of course. But uh, uh, the neck on that 60 Les Paul. 60, 60 was the only year that Les Paul made this very slim mm-hmm. neck. Mm-hmm. I call the rest of them baseball bats. Yeah, I you know? agree. Yeah. Right, because and, and I'm talking slim from top to bottom, not from side to side. Yeah. But from top to bottom, most Les Pauls have that tree trunk in them. You yeah. know, but the sixty, it has this invisible neck. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And for my hand, I have small hands. When I found that guitar, I got it, bought it from Steve Stills, and I tried a room full of guitars that night, and. When I picked that one up, it was like, oh my God, what? This neck is like incredible. So that was the one. Yeah. And and the the replacement one, the white one, has a neck similar to that. The, the white one's a 73. And it, it's amazing. It's got a great neck. But it's the loud, it has its, I didn't know why. It was a loud, I called the loudest left pole in the world. Because it has a little preamp in it, I didn't know. <laughs> and, uh, and Pierre, Duvopar, Keith's guitar man, said, well, there's a pickup in it, there's a preamp in it, that's why it's loud. I went, there is? <laughs> oh, 
Well, you better change the battery because I haven't changed it in 10 years. <laughs> and we changed the battery. It didn't make a shit of difference. It sounded exactly the same. And it just screams that guitar. As a matter of fact, it's funny. For the Buddy Holly record that we did, I did a version of, I co-produced it with Peter, um, Stevie Nicks singing Not Fade Away. Mm-hmm. And we did this great, came out really nice, great version of it. And I play slide on it. And I'm going today to work with Stevie and Steve Jordan is producing Cheryl Crow. Stevie's going to go sing on this really cool tune. And Stevie said, why, could you bring that guitar and play slide on this song? I think it, it might be really cool if you played some of your slide stuff on it. So I'm bringing that white Les Paul with me to the session today. <laughs> and it's a nasty, nasty, evil-sounding guitar. The white Les Paul rides again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I found, I heard from the guy who actually owned it prior to me. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people say, I think that's my guitar, and they're wrong, but this guy was right, it was. Oh, my God. It's a little, there was a little diamond-shaped fix on one of the frets. And and I saw it, I went, yep, there it is. And you're right, it's yours. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I had a question about, uh, and this is going, this is going back again now. Is it true the rumor about that you're playing in the band on the on the stage on the Poseidon Adventure? Yes, that is you. That's me with the big beard. That's you, and that's you guys were doing the morning after, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played on the record of it. Well, not the Maureen McGovern record. I don't think I played on that one, but we we played on the session. This is an amazing story. Um, this is my first time I played on a, a like a movie date, and it was a giant movie date. It was an orchestra and everything. And I was there. Mark Tulin was the bass player. Michael Mardian was the pianist and the you know the arranger, and brought me on to the date. I can't remember who the drummer was. Stu Perry. Stuart Perry was the drummer. And there were guys in the in the band. Uh, there was a guy named Art Munson. Who was a guitar? Who was an ongoing studio player? I was new boy. I was really new guy at that point. So I get on this date, and uh, we hear the song. It's the morning after, so we're going to play it. And someone says, "Oh, and Lionel Newman was conducting this session. Randy Newman's uncle, Mm. Lionel, very famous name, and you know, movie movie music." So I'm, you know, nervous as can be anyway. I'm on this lot, 20th century, I'm this giant soundstage, full orchestra, and the rhythm section. And all of a sudden, someone in the booth up above says, one of the guitars should play the melody. So I, of course, looked at Art Munson saying, hey, well, you, you know, you should play the melody. I mean, I'm, I'm new boy in town, you know, I don't know shit. And all of a sudden, this voice goes, who's Waddy? And I, I said, that's me. And he goes, it was Michael Lamar. He said, have Waddy do it. He plays a really good melody. So I said, they said, you, you play the melody. I went, okay. And I'm going, oh, I'm scared because I'm not that great a reader. And I'm looking at it. It's a simple tune. So I'm looking at the chart. I'm going, okay, I can get through this. I can make this out. I can do this. And so Lionel Newman gets up in front of everybody. I swear to God, it went about just like this. He goes, it was written in, say it was written in uh, G, okay? Mm-hmm. Lionel Newman goes, okay, here we go. Tap, tap, tap with the fucking baton. He goes, okay, one, two, oh, uh, in G flat. Three, <laughs> four. Oh, Jesus Christ. And everything starts, 
and I'm like, what? Huh? Huh? Are you fucking kidding me? And I played like two, three notes, and it fell apart, and he goes, all right, stop. We all right here? Oh, no. And I'm scared to death anyway. This guy's barking at me. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, 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 sure. We started again. I get maybe five, six, seven notes in. <laughs> Terrible, falls apart. He goes, man, what, what is happening here? We're never going to get lunch at this rate. <laughs> and he's really, and he goes, why don't, let's, let's take a, I said, can we, t-? I said, why don't we take a break? Why don't you go have lunch? You know, fortunately, being from New York, I had a little attitude because I was scared to death. Right. But I said, why don't we take lunch now then, okay? He goes, fine, let's take lunch now. So I learned it. Needless to say, we did it, but. <laughs> I was, I was, it was unbelievably scary that is and then the director came by the session and looked at us he goes you, you and you I want you in the movie in the band that's how it happened that's great that is such yeah. a great story I love that yeah. and then years later when working with Randy Newman I said oh by the way <laughs> I worked for your fucking uncle Lionel I was, oh nice guy huh I said yeah yeah really nice yeah Almost as nice as you, you know? <laughs> really fucking nice guy. What a prick. <laughs> Randy agreed. <laughs> now, there's a guy I've always, I mean, I think is an amazing American songwriter, uh, Randy Newman. And Truly. what's it like working with him? Is he, I mean, is it, it's not a Zevon thing, is it? Hell no. no. Randy is uh, not an alcoholic, first of all. If he is, he does it on his own time. Right. And, uh, no, he, uh, Randy is incredible. Yeah. You walk into those dates and it's written out. It's amazing. And the songs you're playing are amazing. And the first things I did for Randy, actually, as a matter of fact, were, uh, well, I played on Short People. Right. They brought me in and, uh, but I don't know if that was the first song I did or not. Because I, no, I think the first thing I did was a song called Rider in the Rain. It's on that record, Little Criminals. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful, it's a shuffle, it's a funny song. Uh, Eagles sing on it, J.D. and, and Don, I think Glenn, a beautiful Glenn, hmm. I think sings on it too. But I, 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 what I was going to say was, I was doing my phony pedal steel stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to it, you'll hear it, the steel guitar that you hear it is not a steel, it's me. And Randy loved what I was doing. He goes, whoa, this guy's good. Let's keep him around. And then they put up shortly after that they put up short people and I heard it and I went oh alright I know what to do here and I put some slide here and mm-hmm. I played the sported guitar the low notes and, mm-hmm. and uh, it really worked so he and I really became musically uh, hooked on each other and I did that record with him and then I did his next record and the, line, the quote that I love that I heard told to me was when he did I Love L.A. um one of the producers, Russ Teitelman or Lenny Warnaker, one of them said, great, okay, it's finished. And he goes, it's not finished till Wachtell plays on it. <laughs> Get him out here. <laughs> I went, what? He says, and he says that little da-na-na-na-na, you know, and I, and I heard the intro, which I love the intro to that song. Yeah. And I said, I got to, I got to put low distorted notes. Those notes need to be on that. And Randy Irving goes, yeah, that's right. That's right. And then I put that little, you know, the answers to the chorus in in the song on the strat. And uh, he says, now it's done. 
This is it's not done till Wachtell plays on it. That's great. Which I loved hearing that. That's I wonderful. That's and that's such a great track too. I mean, still to this day, it, it conjures up all sorts of ideas of California. You know. Yeah. Like oh, a, it's a wonderful song. Like a Beach Boys song. When you heard the Beach Boys, you could picture the beaches. You know, you could picture the sunshine. The same with that track. I love L.A. I love that track. Such a yeah, great song. All right, man. Hey, listen, this was amazing to talk to you, and I appreciate you taking out the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. I had a good time. I, uh, we didn't even get into the winos or anything, but uh, some other time, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Wadi, right. thanks so much for being on the show. I can't, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I had a ball, man. My pleasure. Thank All you right. very much. Take care, Take now. Care. Okay, bye. There you have it, folks. A true icon of music. I mean, really, it, when you think of all the tracks that he has played on, uh, I would invite you to go to his website, and there is a discography on there that will literally take your breath away. Um, like I said, it's got to be three quarters of the my record collection growing up. Um, He's on it. <laughs> He's just a great guitar player, great guy, and it was a blast to have him on. Thank you, Waddy. And special thanks to Scott Thomas for hooking us up, putting everything together. Greatly appreciated. Um, we got to get out of here, but take care of yourselves. Take care of each other and uh, keep on playing. Please, buy it. Don't steal it. A lot of great guitar players out there that need your support. So let's do it. What do you say? They're not all like Wadi. They don't all have a working gig like Wadi. <laughs> so let's see if we can take care of these people. What do you say? We got to get out of here. We'll see you on the next episode of Guitar Radio Show. Peace. Everybody say, you, Ed. I like this crowd already. Production.